0: Go ahead and be seated. Some of you have been walking with the other members at Emmanuel here through a series called Walking Through the Bible, kind of a fast-forward, a Reader's Digest version of Reading Through the Bible. This week we come to a third section which has to do with the constant nature and the constant character of God as a God of love particularly as we probably need to rethink it from the Old Testament. Our emphasis this morning is on the character of God, and not just the character of God as he was, Old Testament times, New Testament times, but as he has been through all of history and even is today. The question is, how do we see God? Especially when there are passages of the Bible that really paint a dark picture of him, or at least what we might think is a dark picture of him. Sometimes it's good for us to revisit people, persons, great events from ancient history, and to rethink them in a new way. For more recent history, I think of President Ulysses S. Grant. I think 18th president of the United States, spent some time, a couple of different times in his life up in northwest Illinois, around Galena. For many years, historians considered him to be one of the worst of all the presidents in American history. He was criticized for his early alcoholism, which he acknowledged. As a general in the Civil War, he was known by the name of Butcher, because it was alleged... He would just throw wave after wave of soldiers into brutal battle without, it was argued, any regard for the number of people killed or wounded. After the war, as president, in two terms, his administration was absolutely plagued by one scandal after another. So as I say, for for decades, he was seen as the worst, perhaps, of all the American presidents. Today, however, very good students of American history are going back to rethink and reconsider Ulysses S. Grant as one of our presidents. He is seen today as being a very good general and even during the war times able to handle his alcohol dependency really quite well. His presidency, although it did have a share of scandals, is now viewed as being, on average, better than most, particularly as it dealt with Reconstruction after the Civil War. And President Grant was one of the great figures in getting the 14th Amendment adopted, which gave the right of citizenship to slaves then, plus a lot of other privileges. So rethinking Grant has given us a new perspective, and a more positive uh, perspective, on that particular president. The same thing can be said on how we evaluate, how we see God. For 2,000 years, maybe more, the God of the Old Testament has been seen by some, maybe by many, as cruel and hateful and vindictive in contrast to the God of the New Testament who for some is loving and kind and forgiving. It's as though there are Kind of two different gods, one for the Old Testament and one for the New. At the time of the very earliest church, there were some people who were saying that. And there was one student of the Bible in the early church who said that very explicitly. His name was Marcion. Shortly after 100 or so A.D., Marcion insisted that the god of the Old Testament was incompetent, ignorant, and wicked... While the God of the New Testament was the only God capable of love and of being loved, worthy to be called God. (laughs) Now, when it came to interpreting the Bible, at least from our perspective, Marcion had a PhD in stupid. He was really something else. Let me give you an example. Marcion went to Genesis chapter 3 and in Genesis chapter 3 we read how God went to the Garden of Eden and he called out, Adam, where are you? And Marcion said that that shows how ignorant and unknowing God was compared to the God of the New Testament who knows everything. And so it went through many of his interpretations of the Old and the New Testament. Remarkably. Remarkably, Marcion had a wide following to the point that almost every very early Christian writer needed to write against Marcion and tell people he's a false teacher. For good reason, he was seen as a false teacher. Today, I don't know that there are many people who would follow Marcion with his extreme views of having a God of the Old Testament and another God of the New Testament. But there's still a tendency, I think, in many people who read the Scriptures to think of the God of the Old Testament much like the Taliban and the God of the New Testament much like a comfort dog or something like that. And yet, yet there are passages of Scripture, particularly from the Old Testament, that make us wonder about God and the instructions he gave to the Hebrews at that time. What do we do with some of the counts of the instructions he gave when the Hebrews were warring against other nations? Deuteronomy 20, that whole chapter has several of these incidents. In just one passage that relays God's instructions to Israel, we read God saying, This you shall do to all the cities that are far away. You shall utterly destroy them. That's not just one place in the Old Testament. That sort of phrase is repeated Several times, in different contexts, and different times. What do we do with these passages? They do sound mean-spirited. They do sound unloving. They most certainly sound harsh, don't they? There are good students of the Bible today who are going back to passages such as I read, and they're rethinking them. They're researching them. They're re-estimating them with new and fresh understandings, and all for the good. Christianity Today, founded by Billy Graham in the middle 1950s, is probably the premier evangelical magazine of the evangelical world in America. Every year at the end of the year, they release some suggestions for reading for Christians who read that particular magazine, Devotional books, study books, all that sort of thing, in different categories. This past month, in December of two thousand twenty-two, Christianity Today recommended this book as a book worthy of special mention—a book by Paul Copan titled "Is God a Vindictive Bully?" And I remember at the time, well, that's kind of a catchy, kind of a catchy-sounding title. I think I'll just get that and read it, which I did. Paul Copan takes some of these passages from the Old Testament. He walks through them and works through them. He helps us understand that maybe it's time for us to rethink some of those passages and some of those perspectives of who God is and what God does from the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples. Copan points out that some of language in the Old Testament is really a kind of military trash talk. It's a kind of a a chest-thumping and saber-rattling, a little bit of bravado going on there. We're going to go out and we're going to smite these folks. It's going to be brutal, but we're going to come out the winner. Folks, we still hear that today in our world and in our day with our military and other militaries around the world. This past week, Russia heard that the United Kingdom was going to be sending special armored tanks to Ukraine for Ukraine's defense. When one of the Russian generals heard that, he said, British tanks are already burning and they will all be burned up by Russia's superior force. A month ago, Hamas in Palestine was celebrating its 35th anniversary of its construction and beginning. The leaders of Hamas claimed last month We are headed toward Jerusalem like a roaring flood. We will fire missiles without number. There will be a regional earthquake. Military trash talk. Talking smack. Happens today. And it happened back then as well. There's also something called holy hyperbole. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells the people to conquer the holy land. And he tells the people... You must devote the people there to complete destruction. Now, God's people, the, the Hebrews, went against the people of Canaan. There were some wars. There were some skirmishes. But we know that in the end, most all the cities were still standing. Most all the people had been forced into exile. Most of them were not killed. There were some, of course. What God meant for the people then, for the military then, was that Israel was to destroy the religious, the economic, the political structures of the nations around them. Destroy their identity. It, it's kind of like what's going on in Eastern Europe. Now, there are all kinds of accounts all over the map today politically, and we know that. But but it does seem that one nation is trying to destroy another nation to the extent that they remove the people first, and then they just destroy the infrastructure, the political structure, the economic structure. It happens today, it happens back then. And sometimes God meant what he meant and did not necessarily mean what he said. Let me repeat that. God meant what he meant and did not necessarily mean what he said. That was true of other New Testament and Old Testament writers as well. Maybe, maybe, the harshest Old Testament passage in this conversation is Psalm 137, verse 9. Here's the writer of that psalm in exile. The country had been lost, Israel had gone to destruction. The worship center in Jerusalem was devastated. They'd lost their property. Some of them had lost family. Now they were far away from their homeland. And the writer of Psalm 137, verse 9, says this Blessed is the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Is this what God wants? Man, that's rough. That is really, really brutal. Blessed is the one who takes your little ones <clears throat> and dashes them against the rocks. <clears throat> Copan says, and I think he's onto something here, that this may very well be a figure of speech. The nations around Israel were nations that had generational dynasties, monarchies that went from one generation to a second, to a third and it seemed each successive generation was becoming increasingly wicked. In addition, they were increasingly hostile to the nation of Israel. And Copin says maybe what's behind this passage is that the writer of 137, verse 9 in the Psalms was really saying. Get rid of your, your generational monarchy, your dynasties that become so evil one generation after another. We would rather that these things just go away. It's like some Brits today who see and hear what's going on with the royal family. And, and the Brits, and I know one at least, personally, who is saying, we just wish this would all go away. All this Charles and Camilla stuff and William and Kate and Harry and Meghan. They're all just rubbish. Just go away, all of you. Get out of our life. And maybe that's exactly what the writer of Psalm 137 verse 9 meant. We just wish these dynasties that are so hostile and so mean and so vindictive and such bullish to us would finally just disappear and more godly people come around. Could be. All of this is simply to say that we need to read and reread passages of Scripture sometimes with some humility and with an understanding that we've got lots to learn. There are meanings and shades of meaning that sometimes we don't appreciate. It is time for us. To come to some of these texts, 1,000, sometimes 2,000 years old, with the understanding that maybe we need to hear them again for the first time, and understand that they are from different contexts, from different times, with words and phrases that can have many levels of meaning. And it is for us to approach them with a sense of learning. Beyond that is, it is easy from our position as comfort from 21st century American perspectives to be critical of past history, including the history of the Hebrews in the Old Testament. They were often in a fight for their lives. And God often found it necessary to act in seemingly harsh ways to protect them into their future. That was God's intention, to protect his people God is angry, no question about it, but that doesn't mean that God is ugly about it. He should be evil. He should be, he should be angry at, at all the evil that he sees in this world. Miroslav Volf is a teacher at Yale University these days. <clears throat> Miroslav Volf grew up in the former Yugoslavia. Miroslav Volf mentions what happened in the period from 1990 to 1995. Less than 30 years past from now. Miroslav Volf says, in his native Yugoslavia, in the wars of ethnic cleansing, 20,000 people were killed and maybe 500,000 people were forced to leave their homeland. Today, the nation of Yugoslavia is no more. It's just gone. At that same time, while that was happening in Eastern Europe, in the country of Rwanda, perhaps as many as 800,000 people lost their lives again in ethnic cleansing in the period of 100 days. 8,000 people a day. most all of them simply butchered to death. And Miroslav Volf said he, he, he was thinking about that for the last couple of decades and And he wondered how God could be so angry and how God could be allowing all of this to happen. And he eventually came to say and to write, I eventually came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't angry at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And he sees what we do to each other. If there are some people on different levels who still read the Old and the New Testament the way Marcion did, at least to some degree, then it is all to the good that we are rethinking our perspective and our image of God in the Old Testament. When we read the whole sweep of those first 39 books we call the Hebrew Bible and the whole sweep of the 29 books we call the New Testament, we come to understand that God cares for his own. He is angry at evil, as he should be, but he always acts to restore his people back to himself. And new readings of scripture are going in the right direction, seems to me, for us to appreciate what the people then were going through and what God was asking them to do. The Bible study in that study book, if you are choosing to go through that with, the, with many members of the church here. And my message this morning is finally not just about how other people read the Old and the New Testament. That's part of it. On another level, how do we picture God for ourselves? What picture do we have of God in our own minds? Is God always out to get me, to, to catch me in a moment of failing? If that's the picture we have in our own minds, then we need to see the full picture of God as the one who wants us to be whole and truly as the one who wants for us a more abundant life right now. He cares for us. He really, really cares for us. He loves us. It's a message we need to hear. In 1741 in New England... Jonathan Edwards, a pastor then, preached a sermon that has often been reproduced. It's probably his most famous sermon. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You you can go and do a computer search and you can read the whole thing for yourself anytime you want. It's quite something. Jonathan Edwards intended to move his congregation in preaching that sermon from being passive and uninvolved in their sort of Christianity to a Christianity that was more passionate, more committed, more active. The sermon was long on scare. Here is one of its most quoted couple of lines. This is Jonathan Edwards. The God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire, hates you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable at his sight as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. (laughs) That's just what he told the, Growing the grown-ups there. Here's what he told the children. And you children who are unconverted, don't you know that you are going down to hell to bear the dreadful wrath of that God who is now angry with you every day and every night? Yikes. Jonathan Edwards was a smart person. Eventually he became president of what eventually then later became Princeton University. But even he later in life Admitted that his sermon, which was really meant to scare people out of hell, really mostly scared the hell out of people. And he said he wouldn't preach that every Sunday. Gee, you think? Because if that's the only understanding that God have that people have of their God, then that's a wrong, a misguided, and a faulty understanding. By contrast, we can read Psalm 103 again. That was our first lesson this morning. It reminds us of God's constant and loving character. The psalm of David. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise his holy name. May I never forget the good he does for me. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. Let all that I am praise the Lord. I speak only for myself, but I have questions about things that I see in my world and things that I see in other people's world and things that I see in the world. The brokenness, the evil, the pain, the disruption, the death. How does all that make sense? And there are passages in the Bible, including in the Old Testament, that continue to confound me. That said, I agree with a statement of Mark Twain. Most people are bothered by those scripture passages which they can't understand. But for me, the passage in scripture which troubles me most are those which I do understand. Well said, Mark Twain. I know that I fall so far short of of what God would have me be and what God would have me do. As we say in our confession so often, I have sinned by what I have done and by what I have left undone. So it is time for me to let God be God. He has cared for his people before creation. He cares for his people now and he will care for his people into eternity. Maybe he does things in his own way that We don't and can't fully appreciate, particularly from episodes in the Old Testament. But reading all the sacred scriptures, the whole sweep of the Bible, all of that reveals to us a God who is constantly reaching out to his people to bring them back to himself. Now he cares for us in Christ Jesus, his last word of rescue for his people. If there is any fog... If there is any uncertainty, if there is any lack of clarity about God's intention for his world, then it comes from a couple of sentences from our gospel lesson this morning. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world and in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, we are saints in the hands of a loving God. God is a God of love. Always has been. Amen and amen. Now be the peace of God. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our salvation. Amen. As Pastor Tiemann mentioned, this week we come to the third of our studies about kind of a walkthrough, a fast-forward through all of the Bible. There's eight sections. This is now the third. And what we come to this morning is how we understand the loving character of God, including in the Old Testament. How do we see God, especially when there are passages from the Old Testament which seem to paint him in a very, very dark light? Sometimes our perspective of events and also persons in the ancient world in a former time from the past, can and should be rethought. It doesn't have to be something way back in ancient history, like the time of the Old Testament Hebrews. It can be more recent. I think, for example, of President Ulysses S. Grant, 18th president of the United States. He spent some time up in northwest Illinois, around Galena, a couple of times in his life. For many years, historians considered Ulysses S. Grant one of the worst, if not the worst president in all of American history. They pointed out that he had some problems with early alcoholism, which he admitted he did. As a general in the Civil War, he was accused of being a butcher, as he allegedly just sent wave after wave of soldiers into brutal battle without regard, it was said, to the number of wounded and killed. After the war as president, and he served two terms, his administration was plagued with one scandal after another, sometimes also involving his family. Today, however, he is considered a fairly capable president and really quite an admirable general serving in the military back then. His president is seen as dealing as best he could with Reconstruction after World War II and He is credited as much as any single individual with the passage of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which gave former slaves the right to vote. So he's being reconsidered in American history. A person who once was considered the worst president of all of the American presidents now is seen as really quite capable and very helpful. The same can be said about how people view God, particularly how people view the God active in the Old Testament and then how they view God active in the New Testament. For some people, the God of the Old Testament is seen as cruel and vindictive, even hateful. In contrast, the God of the New Testament is seen as kind and forgiving and loving. It's almost as if there are two gods for some people. Old Testament, New Testament. At the time of the earliest church, there were some folks who were saying exactly that. The man named Marcion, a student of the Bible, also something of a pastor in the early church, insisted that the God of the Old Testament was incompetent, ignorant, wicked, and hateful, while the God of the New Testament was the only God worthy to be worshipped. He was the God in the New Testament of grace and forgiveness and of love. Now, to be fair, to be fair, when it came to interpreting the Bible, Marcion had a Ph.D. in goofy. I mean, it was unreal what he could come up with. For example, for example. Marcion went to the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, and he read how God was searching for Adam in the Garden of Eden, and God called out, Adam, where are you? And Marcion said, that's because the God of the Old Testament was so ignorant, he didn't even know where Adam was. Well, it's just goofy talk, goofy talk. Remarkably, remarkably, Marcion had a huge following to the point that many of the earliest church writers needed to give a warning to the people to stay away from him and his church. It was for good reason that eventually all of history has seen Marcion to be a false teacher. Having said that, having said that, there are still passages of the Old Testament that make us wonder about God and how he gave instructions for the Hebrew people. What do we do with some of the passages in Deuteronomy, for example? Let me just pull out one from Deuteronomy chapter twenty. God gives instructions to Israel this way. He said, This you shall do to all the cities that are far away, you shall utterly destroy them. Now that's typical of quite a number of passages in the Old Testament. Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, especially the first four or five books of the Old Testament. What do we do with these passages? They sound mean-spirited. They sound unloving. They certainly sound harsh, don't they? There are good students of the Bible today who are taking another look at some of these passages. They're re-estimating them, re-evaluating them. And their understandings give us all, as Bible readers, some new understanding. Christianity Today is probably the premier magazine for evangelical Christians. It was founded in the 1950s, middle 1950s, by Billy Graham. Every year, toward the end of the year, Christianity Today publishes their list of excellent books for Christians, for students of the Bible to read. Could be devotional books. Some are very, very, very difficult academic books, and some are just books for occasional reading. About a month ago, Christianity Today's list of recommended books and award-winning books for 2022 included a book by a man named Paul Copan, and the title of the book is "Is God a Vindictive Bully?" When I saw that title, and it happened maybe two or three weeks ago, I thought that's a book I need to get and to read, which I did, at least most of it. Paul Copan takes a look at some of these passages from the Old Testament particularly these harsh and vindictive passages, and he comes up with some new understandings, putting these words, these phrases, these books into their historical context and understands words with different shades of meaning. For example, Copen points out that in the Old Testament particularly, when it came to warfare and planning for warfare, there was a fair amount of, of military trash-talking going on. Chest-thumping, saber-rattling, that sort of thing. That's nothing new. In fact, it's still around today. This past week, Russia heard that the United Kingdom, Britain, was going to be sending some new tanks to Ukraine to defend the Ukrainians from the Russians. When one of the Russians' generals heard that, he said something like this, British tanks are already burning. No matter how many they send, they'll all be burned. Kind a military trash talk sort of stuff. A month ago, Hamas in Palestine marked its 35th anniversary of its existence. And there was all kinds of celebration in, in parts of Palestine. At one point, one of the leaders of Hamas exclaimed, We are headed toward Jerusalem like a roaring flood. We will fire missiles without counting. There will be a regional earthquake. Military trash talk. Talk and smack. Happened then, happens now too. Kind of goes with this whole business of preparing for war. In addition, there's such a thing as holy hyperbole, Paul Copin points out. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells the people of Israel to conquer the Holy Land and then he says, you must devote the people there to complete destruction. Does that mean that every city needed to be absolutely wiped off the face of the earth? Does that mean that every person in those cities also had to be killed? Not necessarily, Paul Copeland says, and I think he's right here. What God meant was that Israel was to destroy the religious, economic, and political structures of the nations around them, those that wanted to destroy Israel. It's something like we see going on in Eastern Europe today, right? Some of the people moved out of parts of Ukraine while the infrastructure is being destroyed, the religion is being attacked, the economy identity. Sometimes also God meant what he meant and didn't mean necessarily what he said. That was also true of some of the other New Testament and Old Testament writers as well. Perhaps the most brutal of all the passages of the Old Testament is Psalm 137, verse 9. Here's a writer who was in exile. That person had lost their homeland, had lost their worship center, had lost their property, had probably lost some of their family. Now they were three, four, five hundred miles from home with nothing. And that writer of Psalm 137 verse 9 lashes out to the rulers around Israel and says this, Blessed is the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Man, that's brutal. Blessed is the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. That's rough. That's rough. Copan says, there may be a figure of speech behind this, and I think he's on to something here. The nations around Israel were dynasties with multiple generations of kings and royalty. And it seemed like, and is so often the case, Each generation of royalty and kings and queens became increasingly brutal, increasingly hateful, increasingly hateful and and, and harmful to the people of Israel. There was a time, and and I think Copan here is right, where he was saying what the writer of Psalm 137 verse 9 was saying is, We wish your monarchy, your intergenerational dynasty would just come to an end. We're tired of your kids and your grandkids doing all these things to us. It's like some Brits today who are shaking their heads at the monarchy and at the royalty in England. And they're saying something like Charles and Camilla and William and Kate and... Harry and Megan, you're all rubbish. Just go away, all of you. We don't want to see you anymore. Just get out of our life. And, And there are Brits, there are people in Britain who are saying exactly that. All of this simply is to say that when it comes time to reading passages of Scripture, certainly some in the Old Testament, we need to approach them with an understanding of humility that maybe we don't know all the context and all the background and all the shades of meaning about what was said then. And we need to have some patience in understanding how these passages are to be read. It is easy from our position as 21st Americans, extremely comfortable generation after generation, decade after decade, to be critical of past history, including the history of the Hebrews of the Old Testament. They were often in the fight of their lives. And God often acted, sometimes in ways that we think are harsh and vindictive today, to protect them into their future. That was God's intention, to protect his people. Is God angry? Absolutely. As he should be. As he sees evil track out and trace out, in the world today. Miroslav Volf is a very, very good and popular teacher at Yale University today. He grew up in what used to be Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia is no more. Miroslav Volf, for much of his academic life, wondered about the anger of God and how God is pictured as hating evil. He said he didn't understand how that was an appropriate picture of God. And then Miroslav Volf said, he went through the 1990s, especially 1990 to 1995, watching his homeland be torn in two with ethnic cleansing. At least 20,000 people died, maybe 100,000 people. At least 500,000 people were displaced from that part of Eastern Europe. At the same time that that was happening in Eastern Europe, in the former Yugoslavia, at the same time, in Rwanda, perhaps eight hundred thousand people were killed, most of them hacked to death, in a nation called Rwanda, in a hundred days. Eight hundred thousand people hacked to death. And Miroslav Volf read, uh, thought about that, and, and he finally wrote. I eventually came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't angry at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being in love. God is wrathful because he is love. Is God angry? Absolutely. Not in an ugly kind of way, a fly-off-the-handle, bitter kind of way. He's angry what we still do as people in our nations and how we treat each other. And the damage we do on a personal level and even on a national level. If some folks tend to follow Marcion yet today, at least on a minor level, then it's all for the good that we have people who are going back to these Old Testament texts, particularly, rethinking them, reevaluating them, reestimating them, and rethinking the picture of God in the Old Testament. God cares for his own. He's angry with evil. No doubt about that. Always has been. Always will be. But he's always acting to restore his people back to himself. Now the Bible study this week and the message this morning, they are not necessarily only exercises in how we picture God in the Old Testament. They're also meant to ask us about our own understanding, our own picture, our own mental view of God himself. Is God always out to get me? Kind of a spoil sport? A kind of a person who always wants to rain on our parade? Is he a domineering, even abusive father? If that's a picture that we have in our mind, then we need to recalibrate our own understanding of God and get that full picture from the full sweep of Old Testament and New Testament history. We need to come to understand He wants us to be whole, and He wants for us a more abundant life. He cares for us. He really, really, truly cares for us. Not everybody hears that message, that God is a God of love. In 1741, in parts of New England, Jonathan Edwards was a popular preacher. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that is often considered one of the great sermons for that period and for the people then. It's been widely reproduced. The sermon was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, the the sermon was meant to move people from being kind of passive and uninvolved to a people who were Christians who are, Passionate, involved, and committed. More on a daily basis in tune with the will of God in doing that. (laughs) The story was long on scare. Here's a couple of the most quoted lines, the most quoted lines from that sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire hates you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. (laughs) And That's just what he told the adults. Here's what he said to the children. And you children who are unconverted, don't you know that you are going down to hell to bear the dreadful wrath of that God who is now angry with you every day and every night? Yikes! Jonathan Edwards was a smart person. He eventually became president of what is now Princeton University. But in his later years, he admitted... That this sermon was, which was really meant to scare people out of hell, really just scared the hell out of people. And it did. That was something. And he admitted that finally you probably shouldn't preach that sermon very often. Yes, you think? Not much love there. Not much forgiving. In our first lesson this morning, by contrast... The writer of Psalm 103 speaks about the caring and loving and forgiving nature of God. Psalm 103, let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise his holy name. May I never forget the good things he does for me. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Folks, I still have questions, and, and surely you do as well, about what I see in my world and, and what I see in the world that's happening to other people especially. The brokenness, the pain, the evil, the disruption, the death. How does that all make sense? And sometimes when we see this in spades in the Christian church among Christian people as well, and what, what's happening to them and, and what they do to each other? How does that all make sense? And there are still passages in the Old Testament for sure that absolutely continue to confound me. That said, I agree with Mark Twain, the humorist. Most people are bothered by those Scripture passages which they can't understand. But for me, the passages in Scripture which trouble me most are those which I do understand. I fall so far short of what God has in mind for me to be and to do. As we say in the confession, I have sinned by what I have done and by what I have left done. It is time for me to let God be God. He has cared for his people as a loving father since creation, sometimes in ways that we probably now can't and probably never will fully appreciate and understand. But again, reading all the sacred scriptures, the whole sweep of the Bible, there is revealed to us a God who constantly is reaching out to his people to bring them back to Himself. If we want to hear a short summary of what God's intentions are for his people, if there is any fog, if there is any uncertainty, if there is any lack of clarity about God's intention for his world, then there are two sentences from our gospel lesson this morning that say it all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I may not get that, but I get that. We are saints In the hands of a loving God. God is a God of love. Always has been. For that message of love that trumps the messages of of hate and evil in our world today. And for all the blessings we enjoy truly on a daily level. For that and so much more. This morning we say, thanks, thanks, and thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Let's all rise now and make professional